First John is where we find ourselves here today. I have started a series called Great New Testament Text, and there are many of them. Obviously, it'll be limited in number, but 1 John is a familiar text, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. I've entitled my message, How to Stay Right with God. How to Stay Right with God. Now, many people in our society, our American culture, appreciate certain aspects of Christianity. They may not voice it, even though they're not believers, they like the idea of the golden rule. Well, I treat you nice, you treat me nice. Or maybe they like the thought that God is love. You'll hear them say that. Well, we should be loving because God is love. Or they don't like the idea of hypocrisy. Hypocrisy should be shunned. So they like some general ideas about the Bible. But if you bring up a verse like John 14, 6, where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no man cometh unto the Father but by me, they bristle. They bristle because that seems narrow, that seems exclusive, that seems uh, arrogant, that there's only one way to God and it has to be through Jesus Christ or modern day Christianity. And we accept it as Christians because it's scripture. We know it's true. But sometimes we have difficulty remembering or embracing other truths from scripture such as the only way to have continuing fellowship with God is through the confession of our sin. Let me say it again. The only way to have continuing and a growing fellowship with God is through the confession of our sin. The Bible says in Psalm 66, verse 18, if I regard iniquity in my heart, God will not hear me. In other words, if I retain if I hang on to my sin, God isn't going to answer my prayer. My prayers won't go as high as the ceiling. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Or 1 John chapter 1, verse 6, we read it a moment ago. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, that's John's symbolic language for walking in sin, in disobedience. If we say that we have fellowship with God and we walk in darkness, we lie and we're not practicing the truth. We're saying one thing and we're doing something else. So the Bible clearly teaches that if you have been saved, you can't lose your salvation. We understand that. I think that's a kind of a foundational thing that probably everyone here would agree to. John 10, 27, 28 says, My sheep hear my voice, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life. We didn't earn it. We don't deserve it. He gives it to us as a gift. It's called grace. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. He didn't say except if you commit certain sins. He says, And they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. That's just one of many verses that give us assurance of salvation. You didn't do anything to earn it. You can't do anything to lose it. Because if you could do something to lose it, that means that you had done something to earn it. We didn't do anything to earn salvation. Can't do anything to lose it. So we get that. You can't lose your salvation, but the Bible says that you can lose the joy of your salvation. You can lose the joy of your salvation. You're saved, but there's no joy there. There's no exuberance. There's no walk with God. There's no fellowship. Although to many that I'm probably speaking to today, confession and repentance seem like elementary or basic 
truths to the Christian experience, even though we would acknowledge that, we have to acknowledge that they're essential to having a successful walk with God, a victorious walk in this world, to maintaining a walk with God. Confession and repentance are essential to having a walk with God. So let's talk about it here this morning. 1 John 1.9 is our text. I'll reread it. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I'm going to extract two truths from this text. First, true fellowship with God requires maintenance. True fellowship with God requires maintenance. Vehicles need maintenance. Buildings need maintenance. Relationships need maintenance. Both human and divine need maintenance. True fellowship with God requires maintenance. We understand that. It's a given. And it's a truth from Scripture. So the Bible tells us we are to confess our sins regularly. We are to confess our sins regularly. You know, in several West African countries, west of the Sahara Desert, there is a season about three months out of the year where the winds blow, they're called harmatons. That's what they name these winds. That blow off the Sahara Desert and they blow across their land. Although it's imperceptible at times, there is a buildup of dust and sand that constantly requires cleanup. It's just part of life if you live in West Africa during those three months out of the year. Unfortunately for us, sin seems to blanket much of what we think or say and or do and It may seem imperceptible to us, even as Christians, but it needs constant cleanup. It needs constant maintenance because it blows across what we say and what we think and what we do, and it it just filters down this sin in this world that we live in. The word translated here, confess, 1 John 1, 9, go back here. If we confess our sins, the word confess here is the Greek word homo legeo. We recognize that homo, the same, legeo, the word, and it literally means to say the same thing. In other words, we're saying the same thing that God says. We could literally translate it, we agree with God about our sin. We agree with God with what he says about our sin. So when we confess our sins, we're agreeing with God in what his perception of sin is. We're saying, God, you're right. This is sin. We're affirming that our sin is a transgression of his law and a violation of his will. That's what we're saying when we confess our sins. Now, I have a question for you. Maybe you thought of this. How do we reconcile the comprehensive the comprehensiveness and permanence of God's forgiveness and the imputing of perfect righteousness to believers at the point of salvation and the continuing need for penitence. How do we reconcile? If when we're saved, all of our sins are under the blood, then why do we need to keep coming back to God 
with asking for forgiveness. Have you ever wrestled with that? And by the way, I use the word penitence. What is penitent? It's a theological word. And penitence is expressing regret, expressing sorrow. That's what penitence is. Now, most of you know I grew up a Roman Catholic. For the first 20 years of my life, that was my church. The Roman Catholic Church teaches not penitence, but penance. P-E-N-A-N-C-E. The difference between penitence is recognize what I've done is wrong and I'm sorry, God. I regret it. I'm, I'm, I'm broken over it. And penance is doing something that atones for your own sin. The classic example is Martin Luther walking up the steps on his knees at St. Peter's Basilica there in Rome. His knees are bloody and he's doing penance for his sins. He realized, I can't atone for my own sin. Penance doesn't cut it, in other words. Penitence is recognizing what I've done is wrong. If we're secure in Christ and all of our sins are future when he died on the cross and when we get saved, it's covering the sins that we've done in the past and sins that we'll even do in the future. Why do we bother? Why does the Bible teach that we confess our sins? Well, we must understand the Bible teaches that there are two aspects to forgiveness. So follow with me. Maybe you want to write down the term. There are two aspects of forgiveness. There is judicial or legal forgiveness. In the forensic sense, in the legal courtroom idea, there is judicial or legal forgiveness which relates to our salvation. When I accepted Jesus Christ as a college student and the blood of Christ was applied to my sins in the judicial sense, I had the imputed righteousness of Christ transferred to my account. That's judicial or legal forgiveness. Then there is personal or paternal forgiveness forgiveness, which relates to my sanctification, my relationship with God. The first one describes my sonship with the Lord. The second one describes my fellowship with the Lord, my sanctification. So the Lord illustrated this when he washed the apostles' feet in the upper room. Let's turn there, John 13. I want you to see it in this passage. This is in John's gospel, of course, the the final week there, the Passion Week. John spends half of his gospel in that last week of Christ's life. And Jesus is observing the last Passover meal with his disciples. And he does something that stuns them. John chapter 13, starting verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from the supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. Most of us understand in the ancient world, they wore sandals, their feet got dirty. The lowest of the slaves, the lowest of the servants was the foot washer. You could literally be mentally handicapped and still perform this job. So it was not the highly trained or educated servant. It was the lowest of the servants that did the foot washing. Verse 5, after that he poured water into a basin, began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel which he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter and Peter said, Lord, what are you going to do? Are you going to wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing, you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. 
Lord, don't humiliate yourself. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash your feet, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then not only wash my feet, but my hands and, and my head too. And Jesus said to him, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet. But it, because he's completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. More than just modeling humility, and Jesus was. Jesus was modeling humility. He's saying, I'm serving you. If you want to be great, go serve. It's not the number of servants that you have. It's the number that you can serve that determines real greatness. So more than modeling humility, Jesus made a distinction between the all-cleansing bath, which represents salvation, he makes a distinction between the all-cleansing bath representing forgiveness of salvation and the washing of the feet, which is the ongoing forgiveness of sanctification. So he illustrates it so they would remember it. You're saved, but you're going to have to come back to me. You're going to have to come back to the Father because you're going to sin. You live in a sinful world and you still have sinful appetites. Although repentant sinners have already been justified once for all, they have not yet been delivered from the presence and power of sin in their daily lives and in this world. Do you follow me? Our sins are under the blood. We never will answer for them. But our fellowship with the Lord is affected by our coming to him and getting cleansed from sins that we have committed. First, we've seen we are to confess our sins regularly. Number two, we are to confess our sins specifically. We are to confess our sins specifically. True confession is naming sin and calling it by what God calls it, not by what mankind likes to do. Mankind likes to rename sin. God calls it drunkenness, and mankind calls it an addiction, an alcohol addiction. God calls it adultery or immorality. And mankind likes to call it an affair. And we go on and on with that kind of thing. God calls it sodomy. He calls it perversion. He calls it great wickedness. Mankind calls it same-sex attraction. So when we confess our sins, we are real. We call it what God calls it, and he calls it sin, not a, an addiction or not a hang-up or not a problem or something else. We call it what God calls it, and God calls it envy or hatred or lust or deceit or theft. And by the way, it's more than just admitting the sin. Confession is more than just admitting sin. It means judging sin and facing it honestly. Confessing it means facing it and, and being honest about it, judging it. I heard of a counselor. This has probably happened thousands of times. A counselor was trying to help a man who had come forward after a service, and the man who was distraught and remorseful, maybe we would say, said, I'm a Christian, but there's sin in my life, and I know it, and I need help. So the counselor showed him this very text, the text of our passage today, 1 John 1, 9. He showed him this, read to him, and he said, you know, what you need to do is to confess the sin that's weighing you down to God in prayer. We can do that right now. 
And so the man began to pray. He said, Father, if we have done anything wrong. And the counselor stopped him and said, wait a minute. Wait a minute. If, what are you saying if? You've already admitted that there's sin. Don't say if and don't drag me into your sin. Now, he probably didn't say it like I'm saying it. He said, what's this we business? Don't drag me into your sin. He said, get real with God. And frankly, that's what we need is to get real with God. I'm going to guess that there are many Christians who undoubtedly are saved, undoubtedly headed for heaven because their sins are forgiven at the cross, but they have a broken fellowship with Jesus Christ and the Father because they don't confess their sin, they don't own up to it, and they're not real about it. And so that fellowship is broken. Proverbs 28, 13 says, He who covers his sin will not prosper. But whosoever confesses and forsakes his sins will have mercy. One of King David's great mistakes, and he had several, was after he had sinned with Bathsheba in adultery, he let a year go by before he confessed his sin. And we know after he confessed his sin, he wrote Psalm 32 and he wrote Psalm 51. But for a year, he wrote no psalm. He had no fellowship with God. His walk with God was broken because he didn't confess his sin. Not just the sins of adultery, but sin that we confess to God. He tried to cover his sin. In Psalm 51 verse 10, his penitential psalm he cried create in me a clean heart O god and he said restore unto me the joy of my salvation he didn't say save me again he was already saved old testament saints are saved the same way we are by believing in the word of god and the promise of the messiah that he's atoned for our sins they look forward to it we look back at it all done by faith But he had no joy in his walk, no joy in his experience with God. I'm going to put a quote up here on the screen. I don't know where I read it. It was a long time ago. It's one of the many quotes I have in the fly leaves front and back of my Bible. It's so true. Specific confession of sin is the mark of a true Christian. It is foundational to overcoming sin. It is a habit of the most spiritual believers, and it is an act that glorifies God. 1 John chapter 1. Can I read it again? Specific confession of sin. Regular, I said, and specific. Specific confession of sin is the mark of a true Christian. Unsafe people don't confess their sins. True Christians do. It's the mark of a true Christian. It is foundational to overcoming it, and we're going to get to that. It is the habit of the most spiritual believers, and it is an act that glorifies God. We've looked at true fellowship with God requires maintenance, just like any other relationship. We have to confess our our sins regularly. We have to confess them specifically. Number two, true fellowship with God activates repentance. True fellowship with God will actually activate your desire for repentance. We need to come to God with humility and transparency. You won't confess your sin if you're proud. And you won't confess your sin specifically unless you're transparent. 
It takes a humble person to say, I was wrong. That's true in all relationships. And it's true in our relationship with God. It takes a humble person to admit that they were wrong. And it takes a transparent person to get specific. And frankly, we stink at this. We do. We stink at this. We don't like to get transparent and we don't like to get humble. We come to God, though, with humility and transparency because the Bible said God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. We all know that we sin. What's the big speed bump in the road? What's the wall that we seem to have to overcome? We all know we're sinners. We sin all the time. Why do we hate to admit it? Like I said, we stink at this. Confession of sin is crucial to entering into the light. That's what John says here in 1 John. He likes to use the term light and darkness. He plays on that. He's speaking of justification. Confession of sin is crucial. It's essential to entering into the light, into justification, and it's essential to walking in the light. That's sanctification. So in other words, we come up to the door of heaven. We can't go to heaven unless we come across the welcome mat of admitting that we're sinners and we need to be saved. And thankfully, we've done that. But for some reason, we don't like to continue doing that. But that's essential to walking in the light. This is obvious in Scripture, but there are some who claim. Now, so let me deal with a segment of Christianity. Maybe it's small, but there's a segment of Christianity, and it's existed since the time of Christ. But it's been popularized. There are some who claim that after accepting Christ for salvation, that confession of sin is unnecessary. You don't have to do that. Your sins were forgiven at the cross. You don't have to confess your sins. What they would say, the proponents of this view contend that for a Christian to enjoy their liberty in Christ, they ignore their sin and they focus solely on God's grace. No need to repent, no need to confess, no need to be transparent. Just focus on the grace of God. They would say, if you focus on your sin, you're going to keep committing it. The Bible says just the opposite. If we focus on our sin and admit it to God, we're going to get tired of it and we're going to forsake it. That view has historically led to what's known as antinomianism. You've heard that term before. I've mentioned it several times. Antinomians, anti-against, nomos, the law. Those who disregard the law of God is what it means. So that view leads to antinomianism, a disregard for the law of God, and a callous lack of concern for violating the law of God. Okay, I don't worry about violating God's law. I just focus on the love of God and the grace that comes to me. I don't worry about what I've done that is forbidden by God or warned to us by God. These people are generally indifferent towards the disciplines that produce holiness. In other words, they kind of dismiss what we call the spiritual disciplines, reading the Bible, spending time in prayer, confessing our sin, fellowshipping with other believers going to worship services, so they tend to disregard and take a light view of what we call the disciplines of the Christian life. Antinomianism. Repentance is not only God's work in the heart of an individual leading to salvation, and I want you to see that. Let's, let's, we're here in John. If you're still where we were, turn to the book of Acts, early history of the church, preaching of 
two of the apostles, particularly Peter in the first half, Paul in the latter half. Acts chapter 11, and there are many, many verses, Acts 238, 3:19, but I want to read to you from 11:18. It says, "When they heard these things, they became silent. And they glorified God. Now, the Gentiles are being brought in. And they said, then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. They were saying, we thought salvation was just for Jews. But now we see that God, and notice the phraseology in the Bible. God has given to the Gentiles the ability to repent, the grace to repent. God gives repentance It's not really a human work. We're involved in the process, but God gives us an awareness of our sin, and he gives us the grace to repent. I want to show you another passage, 2 Timothy. We're towards the end of our Bible. 2 Timothy, Paul's last letter here in chapter 2, verse 25. In humility, he's giving instruction to Timothy, of course. In humility, correcting those who are in opposition. In other words, their lifestyles conflicting with themselves and certainly conflicting with God. In opposition, if God perhaps, if God is willing to grant them repentance, you see that? God grants repentance to people. As they hear the word and the Holy Spirit works in their heart and their mind, God grants them repentance. They recognize their sin, but we have to understand that. Repentance is not only God's work in the heart that leads to salvation, but it is an essential element of every believer's sanctification. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1 tells us that. That we have to recognize sin and we have to repent of sin. So God does his work and we do our work. So repentance is the gate. I'm trying to say it in a way that we can all remember. So repentance is the gate that opens to eternal life and it is the path that leads to the abundant life. You tracking with me? We only come into eternal life by going through the gate called repentance, and we only have the abundant life by continuing to repent of our sin as God brings it to our mind, the Holy Spirit convicts us, and we're sensitive to his working. Confession of sin is a necessary component of salvation, but it is also an important aid in conquering sinful habits. Listen to me, because I'm saying what the Bible is saying. Confession of sin is a necessary component of salvation over and over. Jesus said, repent or you shall likewise perish. So we understand it's a necessary component of salvation. We often say it's like a coin. I don't have one on me. But one side would be heads and tails, one side would be faith towards God and one would be repentance towards our sin. Confession of sin is a necessary component of salvation, but is also an important aid in conquering sinful habits. You say, how is that? What does the Bible say about that? When we keep coming back to God over and over and over, asking for his forgiveness for the same sin, we get tired of that. Maybe God doesn't. No indication that he does, but we get tired of that, and it incentivizes us. It incentivizes us to examine the sincerity of our confession. It incentivizes us to examine the sincerity of our repentance. 
Then why, if I really repented of this, if I walked away from it, if I view it as God does it, why do I keep going back to it? So when we keep confessing the same sin, we say, I've got to have victory over this. God grant me grace. It incentivizes us. So we come to God with humility and transparency. So you need to ask yourself, I need to ask myself, am I humble? Humble enough to admit my sin? Am I transparent enough to be honest about my sin before the Lord? Number two, we receive from God cleansing and mercy. That's the good news. We receive from God cleansing and mercy. Remember Isaiah, we've studied it just a couple of weeks ago in the adult Bible classes. And when Isaiah was overwhelmed by this vision that he had from the Lord, we don't know if he was on earth or he was in heaven, caught up in the heaven, but he saw a grandiose vision of the Lord, Isaiah chapter 6. And what was his response of seeing the Lord? He said, I am undone. In other words, I'm as good as dead. This is it. It's over for me. I've seen the Lord. And he goes on to say, and I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. I'm toast. I'm history, is what he's saying. I'm ruined. And what does God do for him? Because he admits his sin. He admits his neediness. The Lord, in symbolic fashion, has an angel take the tongs and coal from off the altar and he places it on Isaiah's lips and he says, now you're cleansed. And after he's cleansed, he's commissioned. In other words, now that you've been cleansed, you confess your sin, you can work for God. You can have fellowship with God. God can use you now. Get it? In the story of the prodigal son, probably one of the most well-known stories in the New Testament that Jesus told the story of the prodigal son, Luke chapter 15, verses 15 through 24, and we don't have time to read it, but the prodigal's sins had taken him far from his father's house and far from his father's land, and he was living with the Gentiles, and he was feeding hogs, and he was so desperate, so destitute, so low that he was eating the food that he fed to the hogs. He had wasted his inheritance. He had squandered his life, and he was down there with the hogs in the hog trough, you could say. And then he came to the end of himself. He was broken, and he repented. And he says, my fathers have servants, slaves, that live a lot better than this. I will go to my father's house. So he goes to his father. And his father instantly forgives him and welcomes him into the home. Now, most of us who are preachers have used that as a picture of salvation. And I think it can be applied that way because God is the father of all, all human beings. He's the father of them. But he's only truly the father of those who are saved. The application is much better for those of us who are believers because this was the father's son. He was already in the family, but he had not confessed his sin to his father. And he had no fellowship with his father, and he had no fruit in his life. There was nothing good going on in his life. But once he repents, he's restored. It's a wonderful picture of the very idea that we're presenting here today, that we have to confess our sin, we have to repent of our sin, and then fellowship with our God is restored. 
The prodigal son was already in the family. He was not receiving salvation, but really restoring fellowship with his father. Now, when your children are disobedient and disrespectful, they're not divorced from the family and disinherited from the will because they're your children. Your heart may be broken and your relationship with them is definitely hurt, but they're still your child, your children. All loving parents, all loving parents want to see broken relationships with their children restored. And I'm probably talking to many people here today that literally you live with that kind of separation, that kind of broken fellowship. And all parents that have the love of God dwelling within them want to have right relationships with their children. And that's true with God. God wants to have a right relationship with you. And if you're his child, you should want a right relationship with him. But it only happens when we confess our sins after we've sinned. What John is saying is that a believer's forgiveness is not based on their ongoing confession. That doesn't make you a Christian. And as soon as you quit doing ongoing confession, you're no longer a Christian. What John is saying is that a believer's forgiveness is not based on their ongoing confession, but their ongoing pattern of confession is because they have experienced forgiveness and transformation. They've experienced forgiveness. They've experienced transformation. They're God's child. They've been redeemed, so they want to go back and confess their sins and have a right relationship. The more believers grow, the more their hatred of sin becomes and the deeper their repentance is. The more a believer grows, the more he will hate his sin and the deeper his repentance will become. That was true of the Apostle Paul. We would say the greatest Christian who ever lived. Remember in Paul's early days, after he was saved, he said, humbly, I'm the least of the apostles. Later on in his life, as he grew in his Christian experience and saw his sinfulness, he said, I'm not the least of the apostles. He said, I'm the least of the saints. Of all the people who have been saved, I'm at the bottom of the list, is what he's saying. At the end of his life, what does he say? I'm the chief of sinners. I'm the worst. I'm as bad as it gets. Why? Because he grew in his Christian life. He saw his sin as God saw it. And his repentance was deeper the longer he lived in his Christian life. Worldly sorrow is what the best the world can do. It's described, by the way, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 through 11. Worldly sorrow is characterized by despair, depression, and what I sometimes say, early death or suicide. Worldly people, and sometimes, I hate to tell you, but you probably know this, backslidden Christians have worldly sorrow. And that's what Paul is writing about in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. He said, you have worldly sorrow. You need true repentance. Worldly sorrow is characterized by despair, depression, and even sometimes suicide. The lost world and often disobedient Christians try to do one of two things, ignore their sin or bury their sin. They try to ignore it. Ah, it's my German 
background, stubbornness, or it's my Irish temper, or it's uh, whatever, you know? That's the way I was raised. That's how my parents dealt with it. Worldly people and backslidden Christians ignore their sin or they try and bury it like it never happened. It's not a problem. Antinomianism. But it still haunts them. Sometimes that haunting becomes so oppressive, they fall into depression and even sometimes commit suicide. Those who try to cover their sin, I have this written somewhere in my Bible. Those who try to cover their sin will find that God always uncovers it. Everybody here has experienced that. Tried to hide my sin, God reveals it. Those who try to cover their sin will find that God always uncovers it. But when we confess our sin, we handle it biblically, when we confess our sin, God covers it permanently with his blood. God says, that's exactly what I wanted you to do. I know you're a sinner. I just wanted you to admit it. I just wanted you to come back and confess it and repent of it so we could have fellowship again. When we come and we bring our sins to God, he covers it permanently with his blood and the fellowship is restored. I want to make sure we all are on the same page. We must understand that a saving relationship with God is permanent and it determines our eternal destiny in heaven. That saving relationship with God can never be lost if we were truly born again. But our ongoing fellowship, one is a saving relationship, one is an ongoing fellowship with God, is dependent upon our obedience in confessing our sin, resulting in either joy or conviction or discipline, the Bible tells us. If we don't confess our sin, he disciplines us, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So we will come back to him. Our ongoing fellowship with God is dependent upon our obedience and confessing our sin, resulting in either joy or correction, as well as impacting our prayers. Because we've mentioned that twice here in the verses. God will not hear us if we regard iniquity in our heart. Judicial forgiveness happens at the point of salvation. Paternal forgiveness, sanctification results in our ongoing confession of our sin so we walk with God and grow to love the things he loves and hate the things he hates. I'm closing my Bible. We're finished for this morning, but let me challenge you. It was a challenge for me studying this out. Am I real? Am I transparent? Am, am I honest about my sin? Because I haven't, and so do you. But that doesn't sideline any of us unless we hang on to them and we refuse to confess and repent of them. So Christian, believer here today, confess your sins regularly, specifically, be transparent with God. Maybe there's someone here today in addition to those of us who are believers and you say, I don't know God. I really don't know him. I don't know that heaven is where I'm headed at the end of my life. You need to come to Christ for salvation and be born again. And then you can begin that walk of the Christian experience. Allow us to help you. Let's pray. Father, thank you that your word is clear and it speaks to us. It's so practical. It's dealing with the life struggles that we 
we struggle with our sin. Help us to deal with it biblically by confessing it, forsaking it, eschewing it, hating it, and following after you as the heart panteth for the water brooks. Our heart pants for you. We would pray in Jesus' name, amen.